trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's Tuesday and that means it's uh, time to connect up with my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you this fine day? Well, I'm all fired up today, Brian. How about you? <laughs> pun pun intended here. I, actually, I saw your article, Don't Park That yeah. Here. Um, for those who haven't yet gone on your website to read this, uh, that's quite a burned up looking vehicle we're looking at. Speaking of fired up. Yeah, and actually it kind of rang home personally for me because as it turns out, the car that spontaneously caught fire and burned uh, a house down along with it was a Mercedes EQE. And I actually happened to have one of those as a test car just a few weeks ago. And it's very possible it could have been the same car. And I'm very grateful it didn't take my house down. But the point is, you know, this is, again, we, we see these things cropping up pretty regularly. A few weeks ago, we saw the cargo ship, um, the what the heck was the Fremantle Highway, that uh, caught fire and immolated itself because it was transporting EVs. That these things have this, this inherent designed-in problem, well, baked-in, I should say, because it's not really a designed-in problem, of, of spontaneously catching fire. In this case, um, the, the Mercedes was just parked in the person's garage. It was not hooked up to a charter. It was just parked, and it randomly caught fire. You know, and this is a, it's interesting to me that this, this problem is something that, that people, including the safety advocates, just seem to drive right on by. You know, it's a legitimate, serious issue. And, oh, it doesn't matter. And the reason it doesn't matter, of course, is because we're all supposed to buy in uh, to this EV stuff, just like we were supposed to buy into the vaccine stuff. Never mind that it doesn't work and, it you know, it's causing people problems. Right. Well, and you point out in your article for those who say, well, you know, but the chances are very rare. Most EVs mm-hmm. aren't going to go up in flames. Despite that, insurance companies, though, are going to be charging much, much more because of that possibility. Sure. You know, the insurance companies constantly adjust, to use their terminology, people's um, premiums based on something like a traffic ticket. Not that you've actually incurred a loss, but their position as well. The fact that you drove faster than the speed limit indicates that you are a greater risk. That's what they say. And since you're a greater risk, that means there's an increased chance that we'll suffer a loss. And therefore, we're going to charge you more for coverage. Well, same thing applies with an electric vehicle. Uh, this vehicle as it has a stands a greater chance of spontaneously catching fire. And by the way, it's not just the EV; it's also potentially your house. And you know, if you look around and talk to people, you'll find that already people's home insurance is going up. Now, it may not be directly tied to EVs yet, but it's inevitable that it will be. You know, this house that burned down—that's a million-dollar loss. Who's going to pay for that? Ultimately, wow. everybody's going to pay for that. Well, and and you you have to consider too that um, the, these EVs. They, when they burn, they're, it's different than, than another car. So even even the fire yeah. department has to have different training now in how they approach these. I assume electrical fires, you know, from a battery powered car, are, are going to have to be handled different than you know just a plain old gas fire. Yeah, well, they burn much hotter in the first place. And the other thing is that even when they're put out, they can spontaneously reignite. Salvage yards have come up with a really novel solution to deal with it. You know, after an EV burns. They haul it to the salvage yard, and they put it basically in a gigantic dumpster. 
filled with sand or some other thing uh, so that if it lights up again, it won't burn down the whole, whole yard. And I think, you know, the other thing people should take into account is that you've got a single source fire point here, i.e. the battery, which has thousands of individual cells. And if any one of them goes awry, then you've got a fire. People say, well, gas cars can burn too, and that's true. But you need to have several things happen in order to have a gas fire. First, you've got to have the gas leak, and then you've got to have a spark. And, you know, those two things together are much less likely to happen than a spontaneous combustion event. And the fact is that every single EV that's on the market right now, make, model, irrespective, all of them have had uh, examples of them go up in smoke. There's nothing comparable to it. And remember the Hugh and Hall back in the 70s? when a relative handful of Pintos went up in smoke. And there was a massive recall, and Ford got slammed, and the Pinto became the butt of jokes. But, you know, don't worry about these EVs. Oh, it's okay. It's just a rare occurrence. No worries. Right, right. Well, the the more we're, we're shepherded into EVs, uh, the more resistant I become. It's kind of like, you know, the more we were shepherded into getting the jab, the more resistant I, sure. I become. And I can't help but think there's got to be some similar reasoning behind it. EVs are more easily controlled. They're dependent upon an electrical grid, uh, often tethered to some kind of uh, outside, yeah. you know, information source, you know, like like Tesla's, where if you don't have the latest mm-hmm. update, well, good luck driving it. Yeah, they want to centralize control power. They don't want alternatives to any form of energy or transportation than the EV, because that's simpler for them to control. And there's also something that's more uh, insidious in terms of the economics of it, which we've touched on before. It's that the cost of these EVs and the impracticality of these EVs is going to serve to drive a lot of people out of cars, just by dint of the fact that most people cannot afford to spend $50,000 on any car, whether it's electric or not. Uh, You know, that's almost incidental. The point is, you know, there's a limited market for cars at that price point. So if all cars uh, are suddenly at that price point, which is where we're headed, then most people are not going to be able to afford cars. The only people who will are the very affluent. And I think that's part of what they want. Heck, they've been very explicit about it. Our friends at the WEF have come out openly and said they want to reduce private car ownership by, I think, more than two-thirds by 2050. And this is how they're going to do it. Wow. By the way, just out of curiosity, are gas prices on the move upwards where you live? You know, I was thinking about that the other day. I haven't seen a great uptick in gas prices, but what I have seen uh, is a steady maintenance of expensive diesel. You know, around here, diesel is still around $4 a gallon. Man, that's expensive. And I expect it will probably go up even more as they continue to, you know, squeeze the regulations that make it very difficult to even offer diesel. Wow. I just, you know, normally the summer driving season, you know, about Memorial Day, we see an uptick in yep. gas prices. And then come Labor Day, it comes a little bit back down. I don't yeah. know if we're going to see that this year. I'm I'm hearing rumbles that uh, not just gas, but everything, you know, inflation is, is going to be kicking in much, much more in earnest. You know, if you're not already feeling sticker shock at the grocery store, you know, hang on to your hats because... Well, yeah, I, I don't doubt it. And, you know, once again, courtesy of the Biden thing and these left woke people... Uh, the country is once again at the mercy of these overseas potentates. If Saudi Arabia cuts back production or doesn't increase production, then that's going to have an effect on what we pay for fuel here. Again, I don't care water for the orange man, but the fact of the matter is that under the orange man, the country didn't need oil from Saudi Arabia. We've become essentially sufficient, and we were very close to getting to the point where we were a net exporter, and that's why gas cost two bucks a gallon under orange man bad. And now we've got, you know, what, what is, I don't know what it is in your area, but we're paying probably about 320 in my area. Okay. We're looking, we're actually about 380, somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. 
That's, I think we're one of the more expensive places, although yep. not as bad as California, which is how I console myself no. on a lot of things. Well, it could be worse. We could be, could be like California. Yeah. Well, you know, the only thing you can say about California uh, is it could be worse. It could be Russia, but Russia is probably better <laughs> now than California. <laughs> oh, so true. So true. Uh, now, I, I know there's a lot of uh, political me- melodrama going on. Uh, just wanted to get your take on, um, you know, Trump has been indicted yet again. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? Is this just a distraction? It seems like these indictments come usually right on the heels of some other mm-hmm. uh, revelation of, oh, and here's some more evidence of what the Biden crime family has been up to. Um, look over here. Trump's getting indicted again. Mm-hmm. Well, I see it as a provo- provocation for one thing. You know, I, I you and I were talking a little bit about this off the air. I think that these people are deliberately trying to goad and push uh, regular Americans to a point of uh, just incredible frustration that's going to percolate over and result in something that they can then use as a pretext to impose even more control. Uh, again, I don't carry water for the orange man, but these are obviously politically trumped up charges. Uh, all of the prior charges that have been leveled at him have proved to be completely erroneous without any any foundation whatsoever, and yet they continue to produce more charges. Meanwhile, you know, we've got the actual hard fact about this influence-peddling crackhead son of the president. And, you know, the obvious implication, you know, if, if it were Trump and if, if Trump's, if Eric Trump had been, you know, caught not paying millions of dollars of taxes, had gotten some kind of a $50,000 a month gig with some corrupt foreign, uh, foreign oligarchs company that his, his president's father had, had done things to make sure wouldn't uh, have to worry about any scrutiny, there would be the wokesters would be out in the streets screaming bloody murder. But, you know, because it's Biden, it's their guy. You know, this is characteristic of the left. The left never attacks its own. Uh, and that's one of the things that the, the other side has got to understand about the left. They don't care about right and wrong. Uh, what they care about is power and holding and maintaining it. Yep. It's a perfect illustration of the, uh, the ends justify the means in how they mm-hmm. go about things. Absolutely. You know, this country has changed a lot. Uh, you know, back when Richard Nixon was the president, there was bipartisan agreement back then when it was discovered that, hey, this guy's, you know, he's kind of a douchebag and he's lying and he didn't tell the truth. And these skullduggeries that were going on are not acceptable. You know, both sides agreed on that. And, you know, that was a good and healthy thing. We're now at the point where a lot of people in this country no longer care at all whether somebody on their side does something really loathsome, so long as they're on their side. Right. Right. Okay. Hold that thought. We are going to continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. There's a link in today's show notes. You can check those out at thebrianhydeshow.com. Back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. By the way, I strongly encourage you, if you, if you need just a little boost every so often to to enjoy, you know, knowing that you're not alone in, in cherishing freedom and maybe a little bit of humor to go along with it, check out his website. Eric's got a great take on things. Eric, I had to, I had to chuckle a little bit as I read your article. Why did they outlaw light bulbs? Because I've, I've seen a lot of people in the last week or so um, going, why on earth... Can I not have an incandescent light bulb? In fact, one friend actually just boasted on Twitter. He says, I just went out and bought a lifetime supply because somebody yeah. told me I can't have it. What's what's the rationale behind uh, getting rid of uh, light bulbs that actually 
I don't know, are, are good. Work. Yeah. <laughs> so they, the government says that uh, they're going to save you money. You know, it's always something like that. They're going to save you money, and nobody ever follows it up with the obvious question. Well, if it's going to save money, then why do we have to have the government force people to do it? Like, right. if, if, if the alternatives to incandescents actually were superior, you think people might buy them? You know, <laughs> the fact is they don't. And really, the backstory is, with regard to incandescents, they have been around for hundred more than 100 years now. The technology is what you call mature, and they are almost free in terms of how cheap it is to manufacture them. You probably remember when you could buy one, you know, two of them for a buck or less. Um, there was very little profit margin in them. So what they've done, uh, the people who wheedled their influence with the federal government, uh, succeeded in getting this ban passed so that now we have to buy uh, these, these other alternatives that are made, guess where, in China, mm-hmm. you know, where they can make them for next to nothing, but they can turn around and sell them here for five times as much and make a lot more money. And at the same time, they can bamboozle the public by telling them, oh, you're going to save money on how much you spend on electricity, never mind how much you spent on the stupid bulbs. You know, it's the same argument that they use to promote these EVs. They'll say, oh, you won't have to spend any money on gas, but you're going to spend $50,000 on the stupid EV. Yeah, it's, I don't like the light from the LEDs. At least, you know, yep. you can, I know you can get some that are more of a soft yellow, but... Um, it it's just not the same. And and my dear mom, who I, I think she's trying to be responsible in her mind, she's trying to, this is the ecologically sound mm-hmm. thing to do because she watches TV. That's where she gets her, sure. her, you know, window on the world. And so, you know, she's, she's very, I wouldn't say happy, but she, she's comfortable with the fact that yes, I'm buying these, these bulbs, but I'm telling you, I'm over there constantly changing out these uh, long lasting led bulbs mm-hmm. that for some reason seem to burn out in my mind, they seem to burn out much quicker than the incandescent ones. Yeah, I have the same experience. Uh, you know, I, I, I've never found one of these things to, to match up with the claims, just like the EVs. Here we go again. You know, they'll tell you, oh, the EV can go 300 miles before you have to recharge it. You get out and drive it and find that the real world range is actually 10 or 20% less than that. You know, your mileage may vary. Everything is cheesy. Everything is corrupt. And, you know, that's kind of an axiom to live by at this point. And, I agree with you about the light. And again, I think it's a matter of choice. It's, it's beyond obnoxious to think that we are now at the state in this country where the federal government is micromanaging our light bulbs. What's next? Are they going to tell us what kinds of socks we're allowed to wear? Right. And you actually, I think you just published this this morning. Um, you talk about how we are seeing a diminishment in our standard of living. And and, mm-hmm. and it's being celebrated, at least by the, the political classes. Oh, this is progress. This is moving forward. But no, it's 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 really not. I mean, we're, we're being... Oh, it's, it's obviously not. It, it's, it's like an inversion of the old Soviet Union. I brought that up in my article where it was clear that the average person's lot in life was mean and hard. You know, they, they lived a, a poor uh, lifestyle of scarcity. They stood in line to get bread. Uh, they didn't have much beyond the clothes on their back. And they lived in these shabby little communal apartments. But they weren't happy about it. You know, they weren't cheering that, oh, look at what I'm doing. It's good for whatever. It's good for the proletariat. Most of them resented it. And when they could, they could get out of there. That's why That's why the Soviets built the Berlin Wall, because people were looking across and seeing, hey, it's better over there. I want to get out of here. That's where I'm headed. Uh, now we're like the Soviet Union, except so many people are really willing to just gladly put on the hair shirt like they put on the mask. You know, so that they can they can see this, so that they can uh, claim they're doing their part in this case to avert the climate from changing. You know, I wonder at what point 
are they going to be living in a mud hut and, and eating the bugs? And at that point, are they going to stop and say, well, wait a minute, this kind of sucks. And what am I doing this for? Uh, now, I, from there, I'd like to pivot into climate crisis. Since it, since it appears that's that's the next thing to be used to stampede the herd in a direction yep. of the political classes choosing. Uh, give me your thoughts on the latest climate crisis. Uh, you haven't yet melted in the summer heat. I assume uh, you know, you're, you're going to make it through this crisis? Yeah, apparently summer is a new thing, right? Just like catching a cold uh, in the winter seemed mm. to be a new thing three <laughs> years ago. And yeah, you know, it's just another example of their hystericizing something and trying to foment a panic about something. And it just it sometimes it just sometimes oppresses me that people don't see what an obvious fraud it is. You know, to have a freak out because it's ninety degrees in July, you know, as if somehow that's abnormal. And I don't I don't doubt for a minute that they're gonna try and pull something like they did with the virus. They're gonna say, Oh, there's a climate crisis. In fact I I gather that the Biden thing is contemplating declaring an emergency over the climate, you know, which would then give the government the same kinds of powers that it had uh, during the so-called pandemic and to lock us down, to prohibit us from driving uh, or turning on the air conditioning or whatever they're going to decide to do. I don't think it's going to fly, though, because this time I think that's something that's much more immediate and plus. Uh, People have now got the experience of what it was like, and they also, I hope, enough of them anyway, uh, realize uh, the nature of this scam and aren't going to fall for it again. I'll admit this is one place where I get really uneasy, if, if only because the people who perpetrated all of the damage during the COVID crisis that they helped to exacerbate, they're still in power, or at least they're still in good standing mm-hmm. in the minds of the public. Um, none of them have been shown a jail cell. None of them have been put on trial. Um, and that's a problem because I think that means they'll do it again if they feel like they can get oh. away with it. It's even worse than that. Uh, you're probably aware that the replacement for Weepy uh, Walensky, Rochelle Walensky at the CDC, is somebody even worse. Mandy Cohen, who was one of the worst of the Gesundheitsführers during the pandemic, uh, she was in charge of the healthcare apparatus in North Carolina, I believe. And she was vicious and relentless about face diaper wearing and cackled, uh, just like Kamala Harris, about the suffering that people were enduring and acting like it was hilarious. Well, Biden just appointed her to be in charge of the CDC. So that's the person who's going to be issuing guidance the next time we have another pandemic. Wow. Well, so let's talk solutions. we got a couple of minutes here. Um, Mm -hmm. Assuming that uh, the people in power haven't decided to change their ways, they haven't come to Jesus, um, what are some of the things you and I could and should be doing to, to make sure that we're not vulnerable to be manipulated by the ruling class? Well, Flex your no muscle, first of all. And prior to flexing that, get in the habit of questioning and practicing due diligence. When they assert something as a hysteric emergency that has to be has to be dealt with right now, meaning do what they say right now without asking questions and without demanding answers, don't do it. Insist that they prove to you that something serious is actually going on and then prove to you that whatever it is they're saying is going to have some kind of palliative or ameliorating effect, that it isn't just kabuki that it isn't just to control you for the sake of controlling you that's good yeah i i and i i think it really does begin with that be willing to question it all i i think we give politicians way too much status beyond what they deserve and uh, frankly i i wish people wouldn't get so mm-hmm. googly-eyed when one walks by oh maybe i could touch the hem of his garment <laughs> well you know I'll, i'm going to be a little generous here i think in that uh, we're, we're still lingering, living on the fumes of what was once 
a pretty functional society and you know a, a government that wasn't thoroughly corrupted. And so people have this institutional memory of trusting authority and trusting government. The assumption is, oh, well, you know, they're not evil. They're well-intended. They're, you know, trying to, to do the right thing for the, for the most people in the best way that they can. That's a hard thing to shed your mind of, to come to grips with the fact that these people are at best grifters and at worst something, at worst, something far worse than just grifters. Yep. And I think, I think my contempt is reserved for their enablers, the ones who continue to peddle the narrative and peddle the lie in spite of all evidence to the contrary. Eric, oh, thanks, thanks so much for all the work that you do, and uh, thanks for being my guest each Tuesday. Always. Thank you for having me, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, I thank you for making this show a part of your day. Even if it's just a little bit, even if you just listen far enough to go, okay, he's still off his rocker. <laughs> and, you know, you move on to better things. Thank you for, for giving it a chance. By the way, quick thank you to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, ClimbingUpward.com, uh, John Pulver is going to be joining me actually, I believe, Thursday on the show. Also, lifesavingfood.com and tmcpnation.com. So you're ready for a no-holds-barred summary of what's what? You know, I don't, I don't spend much time talking about what's happening in Washington, D.C., not because it's entirely irrelevant, but largely what's going on there is, is not really the most important thing in our lives. Now, there are some things that are shaking loose, and I'm going to be telling you about those in the days ahead that uh, I think are very, very important because, well, people who are close to me had their lives turned on end. I mean, some of them spend up to you know, nearly two years in prison waiting for trial, and the scales of justice are fixing to balance in a way that uh, I think is going to surprise a lot of people. There's going to be some vindication, and, and it couldn't come too soon. I don't want to spill my candy in the lobby here, but I'll, uh, I'll tell you more about that in the days ahead. In the meantime, how about a, uh, how about a quick recap of what's going on that's, that's really worth knowing, or at least giving you that 30,000 foot view of, okay, so what exactly is happening in the country? You're not going to get a straight story from corporate media. Even commentators such as myself can only give you limited, you know, a, a limited synopsis of what's happening. James Howard Kunstler, I think he covers a lot of the bases, and he does it with panache, so I really like that. He starts with a quote from Gaius Baltar. The West can't do diplomacy in general. It can't run its cities or countries except into the ground. Its high-tech projects fail almost as a rule. Its infrastructure is crumbling, its economies are crumbling, and its public policies seem to have a civilizational suicide as a final goal. By the way, I don't think that was always true. But given what's driving things today, I don't think that's necessarily far off. Kunstler says, so-called normies might be musing this month of approved mental languor whether the mighty efforts to suppress news of all kinds about everything have concealed the true trendings of our wayward country, leading them to wonder whether it's even possible to be a normie in such an abnormal time and place. So what news is suppressed? Well, he says, 
for instance, that the USA is worse than dead broke, that the people were poisoned, apparently, on purpose, that the spectral Joe Biden sold out our country, that the war we started in Ukraine on purpose for no good reason is about to be lost, and with it our standing around the world, that there actually is such a criminal organism as the blob at large in our government, responsible for the astounding abnormality immersing us. But he says, never mind all that. For now, just go see Barbie. Have a clam roll. Take a dip in the ocean. Another margarita. September will be here soon enough. Now, here he gets a little bit serious and says, eventually, the official perversion of money, either a borrowing an awesome lot of it with no intent of ever repaying, leads to the unhappy circumstance of money disappearing until nobody has any money. And by such, the brokenness of the government transmogrifies to a whole land full of broke people. Many banks go broke as well. Even the high flyers who hoarded things that purport to represent money go broke. Then nobody has the means to buy anything. Businesses that can't sell anything stop being businesses. After a while, no activity is meaningful except grubbing in the soil to grow some food or stealing it from those who grubbed and grew it. By then, you can barely even call it a society. Now, he says, by September, we'll have some idea where all that is heading. The bond market is wobbling because the government can't stop increasing its spending. America issues more and more bonds to borrow ever more money. But to the world's bond buyers, in other words, the lenders, what used to be considered virtually risk-free now looks like a bad bet. So the enticement to buy, which is called the interest rate, has to go up. But as it goes up, the cash value of existing bonds goes down. Who wants the older bonds when the newer ones pay more? The holders of bonds are mainly big institutions like banks, pension funds, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, meaning other countries. They put their large holdings into bonds because in normal times, they're safe and dependable investments. But these are abnormal times. James Howard Kunstler says when the value of their bonds goes down a lot, the value of their reserve goes down. And when those reserves get reduced too much in relation to the institution's liabilities, meaning what they owe, the institutions go bankrupt. When that happens, the people who are vested in those institutions lose their money too and end up having to sell stocks and other property to meet their obligations. This ends up looking like what we call a crash. And he says it will get Normie's attention. So, how's it going with the poisoning of America? Well, since Elon Musk bought Twitter, now X, the app has developed a beefed-up immune system against censorship aimed at it by the FBI, CIA, Department of Homeland Security, and the White House. Twitter is once again a popular medium of information exchange, where news flows pretty freely these days. Even news of previous censorship and cancellation is getting out, with interesting possibilities for consequences. Case in point... Elon Musk tweeted the other day, if you are unfairly treated by your employer due to posting or liking something on this platform, we will fund your legal bill. No limit. Please let us know. Now, James Howard Kunstler says that many brave doctors who questioned the vaccine story are being heard now. And other uh, and entrepreneurial analysts on Twitter, like Edward Dowd, The Unity Project, The Ethical Skeptic, Chief Nerd, regularly publish data and charts showing America and the rest of the world just how much damage the mRNA shots did to millions of people. How many have been disabled and killed by them? By September, the awareness of what has been done and the psychopathic degree of official lying about it 
could pass that threshold beyond which everybody knows and the great crime is revealed. He says, expect a major American political attitude adjustment. And there's surely enough publicly seen evidence to make an impeachment case against Joe Biden. The process seems to move slowly, given the traditional lassitude of Congress. But momentum is building as all these other national fiascos careen toward criticality due to abysmal executive leadership. That evidence shows the Biden family engaged in an international racketeering scheme to peddle JB's influence when he was vice president. That's bribery. And the very word is in the short passage of our Constitution describing the grounds for sacking a high official. Representative Comer's House Oversight Committee has already dug up voluminous suspicious activity reports in Biden family bank accounts and has promised more, including information of offshore hidden accounts. Jim Jordan's preliminary impeachment inquiry has drawn up its first witness list, list which includes the shadowy J.B. aide Michael Carpenter and the slippery Trump impeachment whistleblower CIA agent Eric Ciaramella who essentially accused Mr. Trump of attempting to look into the very bribery crimes of the Biden family lately exposed. A pungent irony. When the impeachment process gets underway in earnest this fall, he says, I expect Joe Biden will resign, leaving Ms. Harris to be managed by the shadow president, Barack Obama. That in itself will become a crisis of its own. He says, our country has vested its prestige and treasure, but not our blood, at least yet, in the preposterous Ukraine proxy war, completely misjudging every element of it. The Russia-phobia of so many blob officials was amplified by their own dishonest efforts to blame Russia for all the self-created ills of our own national life. And the dirty secret of the Ukraine war is that we are no longer in control of events. The Russians are going to settle things there, and that poor palooka of a country will be wrested back into their traditional sphere of influence, no more to be a troublemaker. In fact, he says, I doubt that our puppet, Mr. Zelensky, will be in power by Halloween. NATO will cease to exist, and each nation of Europe will then struggle to settle its own sovereign hash without much of an industrial economy left. So he says, expect governments to fall. In the meantime... Enjoy the clam rolls, the surf, the corn dogs at the fair, and all the other blessings of languorous August. And he says, rest up for what's coming when normies awake. I know, it's, 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 like, a, it's like a backhand across the face. It's like, wow, that, uh, that actually kind of stung. But I guess I'm, I'm one of those weirdos who's at the point where if I'm going to take a look at, uh, at what the truth is, even if it's an unpleasant truth, I want it straight. I don't want the sugar coating. And, and I don't share this with you out of the sense that, boy, this should, uh, this should get you really angry or this should leave you feeling hopeless. I think it's a good starting point for looking at the situation that we're in. And then, look, here's the, here's the silver lining. There is going to be a huge attitude adjustment, politically and otherwise. You know what the great opportunity is there? If you are someone who is determined to be a problem solver, if you are someone who is determined to try to create a better world, and I mean starting where you're standing, that's when a lot of people are going to be snapped out of the trance, that normalcy bias, that, well, no, everything's pretty much okay. Still food in the fridge, you know, something on TV to watch, you know, sports season starting up. They're going to be paying attention. And that is a prime opportunity for those of us who are trying to show that there may be a better way forward to do so and actually get their attention. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got three articles that I would like to share in this uh, final segment of today's show. And I'm going to start with the article of the day. In fact, I, I will not go into a lot of detail here, but I will encourage you, please go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, and click on the show, show notes for today. That would be August 8th. Wow, sorry, I about jumped just two months into the future. Um, August 8th, 2023. Click on the article by John Miltimore about uh, the, the doctors who created the, uh, the article about uh, the proximal origin of the COVID virus. Oh, wow. There's a lot of information that's come out that makes it pretty clear that uh, the, the authors of that proximal origin paper, they believed that the lab leak scenario, in other words, that COVID actually was leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China, was not just possible, but likely. However, under the instruction of who was it, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Francis, somebody told them, but you need to write a paper that, that makes the case that it was a natural proximal origin of this virus. And it's John Miltimore writing for, uh, I think this was originally published on the American Institute for Economic Research, says there are other scientists now stepping up going, hey, that paper was a work of fraud and scientific misconduct. By the way, something that, that adds a little bit of uh, flavor to, to an already interesting situation is that the scientist who authored that paper on the proximal origin of COVID stood to gain, and I believe did gain, millions of dollars in grants from the very uh, foundation or the very institute, rather, that, uh, that Dr. Fauci was running. Are you starting to see the picture? Play ball here and you know, you'll make sure you get your funding. But, uh, but first of all, you have to make this sound as though it was only natural origin and that lab leak was not the likely thing. But they have internal emails from these doctors back and forth between themselves. And they say, no, it was, it was very likely from the lab. But, you know, we'll say what we got to say, wink, wink, because they got to get that money. That's why you want to separate science and government. Too many bad incentives when a scientist's funding is dependent on government, you know, handing them the checks. Well, of course, their finding is going to reflect what's favorable to those in power. I mean, come on, that's just human nature. All right, another article here. This is a great one from uh, Annie Holmquist. Three signs of a tyrant. Now, if you have wondered, well, am I really living under tyranny? I know people used to get really angry. Brian, how could you suggest that tyranny exists in this day? We are the freest, happiest, and most prosperous people on earth. I wonder how many still feel that way. And I'm not trying to say, yeah, life sucks, man. It's terrible. But I'm saying we are not moving in the direction of greater freedom or greater prosperity or stability for that matter. We're moving toward tyranny. And it's it's part of that whole cycle, right, from... Um, great spiritual faith to courage, from courage to liberty, liberty to prosperity, prosperity to abundance, abundance to selfishness, and then selfishness, apathy, and and then uh, we go back into bondage from there. I think dependence is in there somewhere as well. 
But I wanted to share a couple of quick uh, observations here on the part of Annie Holmquist. She's uh, quoting from 17th century clergyman Thomas Fuller in his book, The Holy State and the Profane State, in which he lists 11 traits by which you can recognize a tyrant. And she picked out three of them that she says are just all too familiar to our situation today. Number one, a tyrant takes everything. Fuller says a tyrant leaves nothing that his poor subjects can call their own but their miseries. So for those who just spent a quiet holiday all by their lonesome, thanks to restrictions on gatherings, the statement hits home. When statements and when states rather and governmental leaders strip citizens of even their most basic rights, such as who they can have on their own private property, well, it's no wonder Americans are depressed and miserable. And that's starkly shown in America's suicide rates, which have risen dramatically in recent months. Number two, a tyrant shuns evidence. Fuller notes the tyrant keeps a constant kennel of bloodhounds to accuse whom he pleaseth. As such, the worst men around are his greatest favorites, becoming useful tools to go after the just and upright. The less credit they have, the more they are believed, and their very accusation is held a proof. Accusations, as we have seen, are a favorite tool of those leading today's cancel culture. And according to Fuller, the presence of those quick to accuse and condemn suggests that tyranny is not very far behind. Number three, a tyrant suppresses. And Annie points out that evidence of the suppression of free speech, especially by the big tech industry, is becoming commonplace. Now, this seems particularly prevalent when discussing topics like election fraud or alternate ways of handling COVID-19. Such is the way of the tyrant, for, according to Fuller, he seeks to suppress all memorials and writings of his actions, making his victims speechless to tell no tales to posterity. But for those who may despair over such uh, suppression, Fuller has some comforting words. Quote, Herein their folly is more to be admired than their malice, for learning can never be drained dry. Though it may be dammed up for one age, yet it will break over, and historians' pens, long being kept fasting, will afterward feed more greedily on the memories of tyrants and describe them to the full. In other words, the suppressing tyrant will eventually get his just desserts. Rather. Now she points out, good citizens treat their leaders with respect. She says, if you're like me, perhaps you've struggled in recent weeks as you've seen leaders perform acts of tyranny, wondering how to rightly respond. Do you speak up? Do you submit? Do you defy unjust laws or just go with the flow and hope for the best? She says, such questions are the ones that each one of us need to ponder in our own consciences. But even while we do that, there is one way to fight back against the frustrating tyrannies of recent weeks, that is to be informed and inform others. I like her approach. I actually would recommend you should you should subscribe to her Substack, Annie's Attic. It's anniholmquist.substack.com. Again, there's a link in the show notes at the BrianHydeShow.com. All right, I saved this one for last. This is from Michael Herman. And this is one that I just recently was, was pointed towards. I want to thank Sasha Stone for, for pointing out this amazing writer. Michael Herman has got a gift. And he, he has a recent column in which he talks about, um, I don't know if you have seen it, the, the, I guess it was in California, Stockton, California, where a thief commandeered a rolling trash receptacle, goes into a 7-Eleven, and is just raking things. He's trying to steal cigarettes. 
He's just raking everything into the trash receptacle and onto the floor. He's been on stealing everything he can put into that trash can. And at some point, he's pulling a knife out of his back pocket. He's threatening people, you know, showing the knife, you know, to him so they don't get too close to stop him. Well, at some point, one of the managers come in and comes in and goes to town on this guy with a length of bamboo cane. I mean, he administers this is a world class beatdown. And you can hear the thief screaming with each blow. And yeah, he lays it on. And by the way, my understanding is now authorities in California are looking at uh, criminal charges against the uh, the person who defended against this armed robbery. But this is the real story, and this is the part that really hit me. Michael Herman says, when I watched the video, my visceral reaction was to cheer. Cheer for each time the bamboo cane struck the thief. Cheer for the proprietor to beat the man. He says, I became enraged with a glorious fury, exalted, filled with a joyous anger as the man screamed in pain. Now, he says, I'm, I'm fully aware there's no death penalty for thieving items from a convenience store. But he said, I wanted to see this thief beaten beyond recognition. I mean, that store is the owner's livelihood. It's the way that these men feed their families. It's the way they pay to lead their lives. It's quite probable these two men have everything they've invested in their lives tied up in the store that this guy decided to casually rob. And he says, I sat there and cheered his beating and found myself tensing in the chair, arms tightening as if I too wanted to rain down blows on that thief. And here's his point, as he said, those of you who excuse this kind of behavior on the part of the thief, who've made it into an issue of race or made it into an issue of, well, he deserves these reparations or, you know, he's just a boy who didn't do nothing, you know. He says, you have made me a monster. A man was beaten with a bamboo cane and I cheered. He's a human being failing in that moment, obviously failing in life. And you've replaced any compassion I could have for this man with a desire to have him beaten beyond recognition. You see the point he's making? He says, I don't want to be a monster. I don't want to be so callous and awful. I want my compassion and my understanding back. And I think there's a great cautionary tale in what uh, Michael Herman is sharing here. We cannot allow our hatred of those we perceive to be our enemies to be stronger than our love for that which is good and that which we want to preserve and defend. I know, it seems like quite a conundrum. But it really made me search my heart as I read that commentary. This is The Brian Hyde Show.